Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk about something that's really important for all of us raising kids with anxiety or OCD should know, and that is agoraphobia. And I'm going to go into what agoraphobia is, but to keep it simple, I found this definition that I really liked because I thought it was pretty all-encompassing. And it said agoraphobia is a fear of being in situations where escape might be difficult or that help wouldn't be available if things go wrong. I thought it was a really good summary because sometimes we think of agoraphobia as just the fear of leaving your house, but often it doesn't start off that big. There are other subtle signs that someone is developing agoraphobic behavior. And it's a really high risk for the kids that we have that we're raising with anxiety and OCD. And I'll talk about why that is and why this is such a common comorbid condition, especially moving into adulthood. The cool thing is as parents working with kids who are not adults yet, we have this window of opportunity to nip this in the bud and make sure that that never happens. And I'm going to talk about first educating on all the many different facets of how agoraphobia can show up, how to look for the signs and symptoms in your kids, and then what to do about it to prevent that long-term struggle. But before I get started, I do want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., and to schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is a right fit for you and your child, go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. I feel like that's so good because there's now, you know, not that extra barrier of, I want to put my kids in therapy or my child in therapy, but I don't have the resources. NoCD is filling in that gap, so check them out. I also want to mention that I am in the middle of opening up my new course, Crushing OCD for Kids and Teens, to only the wait list. <laughs> I should like whisper it into my mic. So if you're on my wait list, you have until tomorrow to get this course at a significant discount. I was doing it for, it's a three-day highly discounted rate for people who are on my wait list only. That ends October 5th, 2022 at 9 p.m. Pacific. And so if you are on the wait list, check your emails if you haven't in the last few days, because it's going away tomorrow. If you're not on the wait list and you're like, whoa, 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 what's this about this wait list? You can still get on it. You'll get an email right away saying that the wait list is open and giving you that offer. This class is for kids and teens age seven to really young adult. I made it, you know, very palatable and digestible for really any age to learn what OCD is, even if they've been in treatment forever. I've had a lot of good feedback from kids who have taken it, who've given me feedback and said, you know, I've been in treatment for a long time and there's things I learned. I had my son take it and he was actually like, mom, there's themes that I have that I didn't even know were OCD. It was shocking to me. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? I thought I've explained, but apparently not. And so 12 kids and teens helped me teach this class which has been a really powerful aspect of this online course because the feedback that I'm getting is that it was the kids and teens that are teaching it that really made the difference. And even my son said that. He's like, really liked listening to the 
the kids and teenagers talking about their struggles. And so they talk about their struggles and they also talk about what to do about it, which is motivating because kids tend to listen to other kids more than they're going to listen to us and to me. And so that was a really helpful component of the class. So if you want to learn more about it, or if you want to get on the wait list, which is open, you can go to atparentingsurvivalschool.com. That's my main homepage for my online school. And then you can look, I have a library of classes and you can look for the class crushing OCD for kids and teens. You should see it right there in the library. Click on that. There will be a link that will say, join the wait list. And when you click on that link, at least until tomorrow, you will get an email right away that will say, Hey, you know, for the wait list, the course is actually open and here's a special link to sign up and get that discount. So hopefully you'll check that out and you'll find it super helpful. Okay. I want to move into agoraphobia and I'm going to start with just going over briefly what it is. And even for those of you that know what agoraphobia is, this might be a helpful refresher because there are aspects of agoraphobia that people don't realize are like precursors to full-blown agoraphobia. So full-blown agoraphobia might look like not being able to leave the house for an extended period of time. And, you know, it's, I kind of call it like their safe zone. And so their bubble of safe zone gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just their house. And it can even get worse than that where it's just a room. And so when they move outside of their safe bubble, I've worked with kids in my practice who've had safe bubble radiuses that were a few miles around their house, their whole town, but not outside of their town, all the way down to just their bedroom. And so this will look different for each person. But when we think of agoraphobia, that's that's pretty much what most people think about is they think a person who's not able to leave their house. And when they do leave their house, they are faced with, you know, an anxiety attack or they're faced with just a flood of symptoms and uh, difficult anxiety that they can't navigate and they need to get back to that safe zone to feel to feel okay again. So that's what we kind of know about agoraphobia, but here are some other ones. And and I also want to mention that the core fear, and we're going to talk about this in a second too. The core fear of what drives that agoraphobia is also different for each person. And so that will look different for each one of your kids. So some of them are about losing control in public. And so you can have you know, a person who's afraid that they might throw up in public and everyone will see them or someone with social anxiety who's afraid that they might, you know, get judged or criticized or do something embarrassing in public. You might have someone who has an OCD issue where they're afraid they might say something bad or they might say something racist, kind of like a moral OCD theme. So they might worry that they might do something that's embarrassing. You can have people who are afraid of places where it can be difficult to escape. And so you might have people who are worried about being trapped. So they don't like elevators or small spaces or movie theaters or areas where it's crowded and they would have a hard time getting fresh air or leaving. You can have people who are avoidant because they don't want to have panic attacks. And so as long as they're home, they feel like they won't have a panic attack. So the other aspect of agoraphobia, which isn't talked about as much, is also being afraid of wide open spaces. And so that is still agoraphobia, but it's like a fear of being out in the wide open. I don't see that as much, but I have worked with a few kids who had that. And so that would be like big stadiums or like the mall where it's like really high ceilings or a wide open bridge or something that's expansive or, you know, going into the canyons of a mountain would be overwhelming. That's too much space. 
And so I want to go into the different disorders because most of the time when you research agoraphobia, they'll really link it to an anxiety disorder or panic disorder, almost always panic disorder. And that is the most common way that it shows up. But for our kids, I want to talk about some other ways that I see it showing up that are maybe not discussed as often or as much. So we'll, we'll tackle the first one that's really obvious. Panic disorder and agoraphobia, they, they love to hang out together. They're like bros. You know, it's like, first, I'm going to give you panic disorder, and then I'm going to, you know, get you to give me agoraphobia. And I actually talk about that in my book, Anxiety Sucks, a teen survival guide, where, you know, when you have this panic, it just wants you to stay home all the time. And I kind of touch on that in one of my examples in the book. But I know for me, you know, I had panic attacks when I was in college and the avoidant behavior that comes up for a lot of people with panic attacks is I don't want to be caught off guard. And I know that's how I felt when I was in college and I started to get them. It felt like I was walking around with this bomb and this bomb could go off at any moment. And I didn't want to be caught off guard and I wanted to be in a safe place when it would happen. And so I didn't want to leave my apartment. And so I started to not be able to go to my classes. And then I started to not hang out with my friends because people can come to my house, but I couldn't go out to theirs. And, you know, I quickly went and got some help for it. Luckily, my college had like a mental health facility, you know, and they had counselors and I was able to work through it. But that's how it starts for a lot of people is I just don't want to go out. And I know for my oldest daughter, when she started getting panic attacks around eighth grade, that was kind of her feeling too. It was very hard to get her to go out of the house. And a lot of it was a combination of panic disorder and social anxiety, which we'll get into in a second. And so a lot of times also with panic disorder, it can be tied. I'm going to talk about emetophobia too, the fear of throw up, because it can be tied to separation anxiety. It can be tied. And we think of separation anxiety in layman's terms. We think of it as like a toddler issue, you know, like separation anxiety is a normal thing developmentally. And then the child has a hard time separating in kindergarten or preschool. And then they work through it or toddlerhood, like not even preschool, but clinical separation anxiety is different. It actually starts in middle school, you know, predominantly could start earlier, but, and it's like that struggle of being away from a parent, predominantly the the mother. And when it shows up clinically older, you know, like middle school and later, or like late elementary school, it tends to be typically tied to another disorder like panic disorder or emetophobia, the fear of throwing up. Those three like to hang out together. <laughs> You're like, how many of these things like to hang out together? A lot of them, they do overlap. So it's not like your child has all these distinct issues. It's like, these are dominoes. These are all dominoes. And you know, you hit one domino and then the other goes down as well. And so the reason why that happens is because There's an over-identification with safety attached to the parent. And a lot of times this is happening because as the parent, we're doing something, we're like, we're really adept at calming our kids down. And so they don't feel like they're going to throw up or they don't feel like they're going to have a panic attack and they become dependent on us. And that's why in separate podcasts and YouTube videos, I talk about fostering independence. It doesn't mean that you're not in the room or not helping your child or teenager, but you're coaching them to help themselves so that there's not this symbiotic relationship or this, this story that is told that says, I'm okay as long as I'm with my mom. And you see that often in panic disorder. And you see that often in emetophobia, the fear of throw up. As long as I'm with my mom, 
I'm okay. And so you'll start to see that fear of separation as kind of a a secondary uh, clinical issue because they have this narrative in their head that says, I'm not okay if my mom's not here, because if I have a panic attack, she's the one that helps me calm down. If I'm afraid I'm going to throw up, I don't feel like I have to throw up as long as my mom is here. And so there becomes this over association with safety and and not having symptoms as long as the mom is there. So that's why you see that together. So we have panic disorders with agoraphobia, but then I want to move into some other ones that we don't typically think about. If we think in general terms about agoraphobia that I think happen a lot to our kids. So I'm going to just go through some of them and then we're going to talk about what to do about it. With OCD, you do see this as well. It becomes overwhelming. Now I've seen it both ways. I've seen it where there's kids and teens who feel more comfortable outside of the house and inside of the house becomes a lot of triggers. So it's almost like reverse agoraphobia. (laughs) We should come up with a name for that where they don't want to be in the house because the house is, it's like ground zero for all their stress and their triggers. But more often than not, it's the other way around. And so a lot of times I will see that they don't want to leave the house. And this could be for any OCD theme. It can be that things are contaminated outside. They're not safe. And so it starts to develop this, this narrative again, that, you know, the, the outside world is almost apocalyptic. It's like full of contamination and germs and danger. And as long as I stay home, I'm okay. And that story could be told regardless of what OCD theme or anxiety theme, that the world is not safe. I'm not safe. And the only place I am safe is my home for whatever reason, right? You can have, like I had mentioned earlier, or maybe I didn't because I did, I paused and then I started recording again. (laughs) So when I do that, I kind of forget if I have already said this, I didn't go very far before I was like, what am I saying? (laughs) I was, let me re-record all this, but you can have a fear of going out because you have moral OCD themes that says you're racist. And so you might want to avoid anyone who you perceive you might have that will trigger that thought. And so you just stay home because you don't want to see anyone, or you're afraid that you might blurt out something and you might say something racist or homophobic or whatever the theme is, right? I might say something blasphemous. It doesn't matter. It's different for each kid, depending on their values and their belief system. But there might be this avoidance of, I just don't want to go out. Then I don't have to deal with that issue. So OCD, it can run the gamut, but it can show up in many ways. But the bottom line, the the common factor with all of that is the outside world is triggering. And so I'm going to just stay in my house. That's kind of the commonality between all of those. Moving on from there, and I just want to do these fast so that we can get to also what to do about it, is social anxiety. And so that can really create a lot of agoraphobic behavior because, and I get this because I have social anxiety disorder. It feels so good to just not have to deal with it. (laughs) And so it can be very isolating because when you have social anxiety, it's not that you don't want to connect. You do want to connect, but the fear of judgment and criticism and being in novel places and doing things that could be embarrassing can be overwhelming. And so you might want to stay home because then you don't have to face all of those struggles. And with social anxiety, it could be anything. You know, I don't feel like I look okay today. Or what if I say something weird or embarrassing? Or what if I don't know what to do in a situation? And I know for me with like, I had extreme social anxiety. 
basic things. Like when I was a teenager, I couldn't get a job with a cash register because I was afraid I might mess up and I might look stupid. What if the cash register broke and I had to give them change? What if I couldn't figure out the math? I couldn't order things on the phone. It it became a a really big deal. I couldn't go anywhere socially unless I had a go-to person who would come with me because I'd feel too embarrassed. And so it can balloon from there. So that's social anxiety. Uh, Emetophobia, we already kind of touched on a little bit, but the fear of throwing up or the fear of seeing someone throw up. So emetophobia can be, again, also one of those disorders that can show up in different ways. A lot of people don't realize that it doesn't always have to be a fear of you throwing up. It could be a fear of seeing throw up. Sometimes people have both, but it's just safer for me to stay at home because if I do throw up, depending on what my core fear is around emetophobia, if it's the fear of loss of control, which is what I have. (laughs) Wow. Natasha has every disorder. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like that, but they all go together, right? And all of mine are managed now. I'm able to function really, really well because they're like a little, you know, gnat in my world that, you know, tries to bother me and doesn't get any traction. And that's where we want our kids to get as well. And so with emetophobia, especially if there is a fear of germs, right? So I don't want to go outside because I don't want to get germs. It's dangerous. Or emetophobia, the fear of loss of control. I don't want to throw up in front of other people. It's embarrassing. Those are two very different core fears, right? So check out my podcast on emetophobia where I talk about how they can be very different. And so just treating emetophobia with a blank approach of, oh, it's emetophobia. This is how we treat it is not not really conducive to long-term success because you really want to figure out what is driving the core fear underneath that. For me, it would be embarrassment, loss of control. So if I'm home and I throw up, I'm totally fine. I don't like throwing up, but it's not going to trigger my metaphobia because I'm home. If I feel nauseous and I'm on a plane, which does happen a lot because I have a lot of motion sickness, it tr- it triggers my emetophobia because I think, oh my gosh, this is going to be so embarrassing if I throw up. What am I going to do? I like I still to this day have a little bit of checking behavior. As soon as I go on a plane, I check and make sure there's a barf bag in front of me, you know, in the seat front. I actually carry one in my purse for me and my kids, which is a safety behavior that I still do because I feel better just knowing that I have a place to put my vomit. <laughs> now, those of you that have it, emetophobia are like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> and you know who you're, you are. So that's emetophobia. That can really, in a severe case, it can turn into agoraphobia. So we have to be careful with that one. And the last one is separation anxiety. And I added this even though it's not typically connected with agoraphobia, it it can be perceived that way. And it's still something to watch because if I'm a person who cannot go anywhere without my mom or I need to be home. So separation anxiety also can show up in two different ways. And I often see it going in one direction more strongly than the other. And that is a fear of not being okay unless I'm with my mom. And those tend to be more of the kids who have emetophobia or kids who have panic disorder or kids who have overzealous parents who tend to co-regulate with their child to the extent that the child doesn't feel like they can manage their strong emotions on their own. And it comes from a well-intentioned parent, but often a parent that is anxious themselves. I see kind of as a pattern, not always, but sometimes a lot of the time actually. And so there's that dynamic. And I do have episodes solely on this topic. Just go to atparentingsurvival.com, scroll to the bottom, go to my search button, type in any theme or any topic. In this case, type in separation anxiety, and you will see the 
the episodes that I've done on that, I've done quite a few on separation anxiety where I go more in depth into this, but the other type of separation anxiety that manifests and kids can have both, but they tend to be stronger in one area or the other is I'm worried about my parents. And so kids who worry about their parents tend to not have a predisposition to agoraphobia as much because they're just more of keeping track of you. And that tends to happen more when they have, they don't believe in your safety. And so there, and that could be for all sorts of reasons why they don't believe that you can keep yourself safe, but they need to keep track of you and make sure that you're okay. Um, you can still have that if, if you're my go-to person and you're the one that's going to help me regulate and you're the one that's going to help me not have a fear of throw up or panic, I still might be really hyper vigilant about where you are and how you are because you're my lifeline. Without you, I can't function. So you can get both, but they can show up in very different ways. And when I can't be anywhere without my mom, that flavor of separation anxiety, I am much more at risk for agoraphobia in the sense that I can't go anywhere without you. And so I'm stuck at home unless you come with me. And so you kind of neutralize the agoraphobia, but if you're not, I have to be with you. Or I've seen kids where they have to be at, at their house. They feel, they're actually not, you can think they have separation anxiety, but then when you actually look at it and I ask certain questions in my practice and I'll say, you know, can they be left home alone? Let's say they're 14 or whatever. Can they be left home alone and be okay? And a lot of times parents will say, yeah, as long as they're at home, they're okay. Or as long as I go with them somewhere, they're okay. And then it's like, well, then it's not really 100% separation anxiety. It's more agoraphobia and you're the neutralizing component. So as long as you're with them and they go out, you neutralize that. But if they're home alone, they're okay too. So we really want to dive deep into not just the surface level of, oh, my child has separation anxiety or my child has social anxiety or metaphobia. We have to go so many layers deeper than that to really fully understand how it's being triggered and what the stories are being told and what that core fear or core theme is, is really helpful. Okay. Let's move into what you do about it. It's not too complicated as far as what to do. It's just more complicated in to get our kids to do it. And that's the case for a lot of things I talk about is it's not rocket science. I'm not going to tell you, all right, like put your child who has agoraphobia symptoms, you know, in the middle of the room and have them jump three times and then sprinkle some fairy dust on them and then make them go in a clockwise rotation and they're going to be okay. <laughs> it's not like that. It's like pretty obvious stuff. What we should do for a lot of the things, OCD is pretty counterintuitive, but a lot of the other things are pretty obvious. It's just getting our kids to do them. So if you're seeing these signs, then you want to take notice. If you're seeing that your child has, or your teenager has struggles leaving the house, or they have rules for where they can and cannot go. I can't go to a movie theater, or I can't go into a drive-through because I feel trapped, or I can't go into that place because it's too crowded and they don't have sensory issues, or they could have both. You would do want to rule out other reasons why I can't go on a plane because I feel trapped, or I can't go on a plane, or I can't go into the bathroom, a public bathroom because I might get locked in, not because it's dirty or any other OCD issue. So you're looking for these rules that are happening where they can't do certain things and why they can't do them. Because we're looking for feelings of loss of control or feeling trapped, or it's too vast and open and it triggers a panic attack. We're looking for those general things because sometimes we look at a problem in a very pragmatic way. And so we try to fix it. And then we realize that we actually are just making the problem worse. And I'll give you an example. 
like with my daughter who has a metaphobia and sensory motor OCD as well and social anxiety, when she was in first, second grade, you know, she started to have these feelings of she's going to have an accident. It was a lot of like themes of loss of control. She was going to afraid she was going to throw up. And so, you know, the knee jerk reaction could be, it's a school problem and I'm going to just remove her from school and she'll be fine. And a lot of times that's the knee jerk reaction for a lot of these issues is it shows up first at school. And so we think let's just remove school and it will be fine. And sometimes that is a good choice because, you know, it's maybe it's overwhelming sensory wise, or it's too overstimulating, or they need a smaller environment. But there are times where the school is just another symptom. It's not the school. It could be work. It could be going out to a restaurant. It could be going anywhere. And sometimes we don't learn that until after we take them out of school and then we think the problem will go away. And now it's something different. So for example, with my daughter, we didn't take her out of school, but we did do some accommodations that were kind of partnering with her OCD in the sense that we, we helped her avoid because it was better for her to go to school and get outside of this house and to have accommodations where she didn't have to go into the cafeteria or she didn't have to do PE or whatever was kind of the trigger at the time, but at least get her into the school environment. And then we eventually removed those accommodations because we're always trying to do the least amount of accommodating that we can where our child doesn't go over the cliff. And so it's this balancing act of like, how far can we go? And then while we're this far, now can we build up the skills and push them back? But what happened, which was interesting is I thought things would improve in the summer naively because I thought she doesn't have to go to school. And so she doesn't have to go to, you know, she doesn't have to go to the cafeteria. She doesn't have to go to PE. So her stress will be less. But when it's not school related a hundred percent, it just glums onto other things. And so then she had a hard time going to restaurants, didn't want to go out to eat. And that became a really big issue. Actually, all three of my kids at, at certain times didn't want to leave the house for different reasons. Um, my son didn't want to leave the house because of a social anxiety and being afraid of people. And my daughter didn't want to leave the house because she was afraid she was going to throw up. And so she wound up not wanting to go to birthday parties, things that she would enjoy. When we go out, even to this day, you know, which and she's worked on this a lot, she'll vocalize, mom, I'm really nervous about going out. And I'll say, what is your O-cloud saying? And she'll say, it's not really saying anything. I just feel butterflies. Well, it's so automatic for her now to associate leaving the house with anxiety and feeling anxious that it's just a baseline feeling. You want to always look at, is it really the place where my child is going or is there a bigger issue there? Now, sometimes it is the place and you change the place, you change the school or you change the dynamic and it improves. Sometimes though, the problem is within your child and not the environment. And I've watched parents change schools over and over and over and over again. And I'm like, the problem is internal. And so you're just changing the environment. It's just like changing the wallpaper, but the problem is following you. And so you want to save your time and frustration and your child's time and frustration and just say, what's going on within my child or within the dynamic of me and my child that's causing this issue? Because when you're seeing it in multiple environments and multiple different things, it's what's inside, not what's outside that's causing the issue. So, you know, the first step is identifying the core fear or core trigger or core triggers, because sometimes there's a pattern of them. And so what is making them not want to leave the house and asking my kind of, you know, rote questions that I always tell you to ask can be helpful to say, you know, like with my daughter, not wanting to go 
to the birthday party or whatever, I'll say, well, what's the scariest part about going to this party? And eventually she would say something like, I'm afraid I might throw up or I feel nauseous. What if I throw up? And then I don't move into, you're not going to throw up. You know, I'll say, right, you may or may not throw up, but what will happen if you throw up? Or what green thoughts can you tell yourself? We do that for her anxiety. And she'll say, well, and she will say to herself, well, you know, I always feel this way and I always worry I'm going to throw up. And I actually never do. And even if I did, because you always want to have that sprinkle of uncertainty embraced. You don't want to have 100% guarantee reassurance because that's what OCD likes. And it's not realistic, right? She may throw up. I don't know. It could happen. And then she'll say, I can always come back to the car. So when I ask her these questions over and over in different environments where she doesn't want to go, I'm collecting data and we're always wanting to collect data. And I'm trying to figure out what is driving that. So sometimes it's, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to throw up for people. Sometimes it's, I'm afraid I might look bad or I'm embarrassed. I don't know people, right? More of a social anxiety theme. It could be, you're not able to come with me. And so I don't want to go. It could be, I don't feel safe. You know, what if something bad happens to me? It could be, I might have a panic attack. It could be, what if I want to leave and I can't, I feel trapped or I'm going to get stuck somewhere. That could be a common one as well, just with pure agoraphobia. So you want to look at the core triggers. And even if you have multiple ones, there's normally a theme attached to that. And then you want to educate your child on agoraphobia. And you don't have to pathologize it and use agoraphobia. But I say to my kids, the more you avoid, the more you're going to have to avoid. And I always use examples like from my practice. I'll just be like, I've worked with kids where like all they could do is stay home. They couldn't even leave their house. Do you want that to be your world? You know, and sometimes I think kids and teens don't look farther than tomorrow. And so they tend to have a lot of tunnel vision. And so that can be kind of tricky because sometimes it doesn't motivate them. And you have to go a little bit closer to their their world right now and say, you know, I've seen it where kids can't go to their friend's house or can't go to birthday parties, you know, and already it's hard for you to go over to your friend's house. Like you get nervous beforehand. It can get worse. The more you avoid, the bigger it'll get. I mean, you can use real life situations. And so, you know, when they've had times where they've avoided before and they, it's gotten, the problem has gotten worse, helping them connect the dots. So I always start with finding the core fear or core trigger. That's like my first step for almost any anxiety or OCD problem that we're dealing with. I want to know, I want to know the nitty gritty of what's going on. Now, sometimes it's a core feeling, right? I just feel gross or I feel disgusted or feel just not right. So I want to find that though, the core fear or core feeling. Then I want to educate my child and I want to educate them on how avoidance grows avoidance. And the more you avoid, the more you have to avoid and that their safe bubble can become so small that all, you know, that that they can just live in their house and they don't want that. And then as parents, and this is the not rocket science aspect of what we're going to talk about today is doing exposures. One, don't let their bubble get any smaller. So once you see their bubble, you know, this is their radius. They, you know, this is the list of things they can't do. You want to work with your child or teenager and highlight that in a a non-confrontational way. You know, get them, if they're willing and communicative, get them to list it out. What are the places you think, and you know, hopefully you've personified the anxiety or OCD if they're on board with that. And so I would say, let's just pretend it's called O-Cloud. I would say something like, where do you think O-Cloud doesn't, makes you feel uncomfortable? And personifying it helps because now I'm not talking about where can you not go? You know, where is it hard for you to not go? Because that that can be shame-based, even though that's not our, you know, that's not the purpose. But when I say, you know, what is your 
O-Cloud not letting you do, then it's not about them. And I find kids are much more open and free in general to talk about it when it's an, it's a third party. And so they might say, well, I get nervous about, you know, going to restaurants. That's a big one for metaphobia. Number one, right? Restaurants, or I don't like going to festivals, or I don't like going to like new people's houses because sometimes they have funky smells and it might make me throw up. Or what if I get sick at night? And so you have them list all the different places where they cannot go already. And then you say, let's work on this list. And we don't want this list to grow. And if you do see a new thing that's happening where they can't go to that anymore, you say, we have to add this to the list because we have to know what O Cloud is, or yeah. Worry cloud or O cloud, whatever you're going to call it. And I forgot what I already said. <laughs> but you want a visual of what is growing and what's being taken off. That helps. Now, if your child has some depression is- issues or hopelessness issues, then it may not be a great thing to do because it might make them feel overwhelmed. But in general, when I'm working with a child who doesn't have depression history or issues and isn't going to take it in that way, it can be really helpful to literally write down, these are the places you can't go or can't do. And that's not your fault. That's O'Cloud's fault. That's what I say. You know, O'Cloud is robbing you of your freedom one small step at a time. And that's not fair because you deserve to have a fun life where you can go anywhere and do anything. And so what area should we work on first? And then do exposures. And that can look different for each kid. I mean, if you have a person with like true agoraphobia, like they're not able to leave their house, an exposure might be sitting on the back porch for 30 seconds. I mean, if you have like true agoraphobia where you're not able to leave the house at all and you might build up that time over time, then you might sit in the front and then you might walk, you know, to the sidewalk and back. Then you might walk around the building or around your block. It will look different for each person depending on the severity of their agoraphobia. And most kids don't get to that level, but they're in childhood and, and during their teen life, they're building up for this because they can only go to certain places and they're working their way up to that. And a lot of them have to still go to school. So you don't see full-blown agoraphobia as often you can, but not as often in kids and teens as you do in adulthood. But we can put the brakes on it early and we could put the brakes on by doing exposures, slow and steady. Also working on their core fear can really be helpful regardless of whether you are going out or not. And so it's a two-pronged approach because it's working on their core fear or core feeling. You can do exposures at home around that. You can do social anxiety exposures. You can do panic disorder exposures, you know, where they experience the discomfort of, you know, hyperventilating or getting dizzy. You know, you can do exposures around that. You can do exposures around the fear of throw up, separation anxiety. You can do exposures around contamination, all of that in your home That's why it's a two-prong approach. You're working on that core fear, core issue, and you want to also extend that safety bubble. I want to make that safety bubble bigger and bigger until the world is perceived as, you know, there is no safety bubble. I can go wherever I want and do whatever I want without restriction. And so once you identify the core fear, core feeling, you educate your child on agoraphobia or the avoidant behavior then you partner with them to develop exposures. And that might look like, um, we're going to go to a restaurant, you know, and in a perfect world, I don't like forcing our kids because you can force your kids to do things and they're going, you know, with their heels dug into the dirt really deep and they're in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And there's no learning curve going on. It's just survival. I'm going to survive this. I'm going to like 
you know, grit my teeth and survive this experience. And then, and then it almost validates my agoraphobia because I think, oh my gosh, that was a nightmare. And now, phew, I'm home again. And so in a perfect world, we want to, you know, partner with our kids. And I know that's sometimes impossible to do, but that's what we want to do and say, you know, what are the first steps that you want to do? And even if they're resistant, like let's say going to a restaurant, because I'm using that one because that's a big one for a lot of our kids, especially with social anxiety or emetophobia. You can feel like you're on stage if you have social anxiety and restaurants are where people are eating. It's where people can choke. It's where people can throw up. And if you throw up at a restaurant, it's super embarrassing. So restaurants tend to be a trigger. Movie theaters also can be a trigger for agoraphobia. But you might say, I know rest, I've know i noticed restaurants are really hard for you. And we don't have to go and sit and eat a full meal at a restaurant. Like that's That might be a 10 for you. But what's a small step? And it might be, can we get some food and sit in the parking lot, you know? And so can we just walk in? And it might, if that's too much, it might be, let me get the food to go and we eat in the car. That might be the first step. Or if that's just ridiculously simple, it might be, let's get the food to go. So just walk in with me. If it's social anxiety, it might be you order the food um, or you order some of the food or you, you pay for the food, you know, I'll give you the money and then we leave. Another step might be, let's eat in this place that is more of a takeout place and we'll sit down, but you can leave at any time. We're not waiting on the waitress. We're not waiting on a check. And so you can have your freedom. That I'm just using that one as an example because I just want you to get the gist of how this would look in a step-by-step, you know, like one small step, then you build up to another step. That's the exposure ladder. And you don't have to do it in an exposure ladder. You can do it in a menu way where you're just picking a challenge each day. But I do feel like with agoraphobia, it might be more effective and conducive to do a ladder approach where it's just one small step at a time and you're building. Each step is building on the success of the step below it. I do feel like for agoraphobia in particular, that could be a much more effective approach, Um, but it doesn't have to be the only approach. And so that's how you would go with that. And you just want to have an ongoing conversation with your child. Like, you know, you did this and I feel like offering incentives or bravery points that lead to, to them earning privileges or items is really, really important in doing exposures of any, any type. And so sometimes people say, I've done what you said, but I'm not getting buy-in. And then I've had kids come into my practice where they didn't have buy-in. Um, they've been to other therapists and all I did was like, go on Amazon and find something that you want. And they'd be like, what? And I'm like, that fine. What what do you want? And I would give them a, a price range and I'd, oh, I want an Xbox controller. Okay, let's work on how you can work on this. You know, you can get that. You're going to just have to do exposures and they don't have to be scary. They're going to be one small step at a time. Let's talk about what things you feel like you are able to do right now um, or you're willing to do right now. And I would get a lot more traction with a lot more kids because one, they wanted something external. Now, eventually it internalizes and they wind up doing really well. But and two, I let them pick the thing. So it wasn't scary, right? And sometimes they pick something that I thought, ah, I know you can do that. Or that's really not anxiety producing for, you know, anybody. That wouldn't be anxiety producing for my dog. But I let them start with that to get some traction into the buy-in of the, the system. Like this is how it's going to work. You're going to do something and you're going to earn something. And that's what we're going to do. And then the next time they pick something else is a little bit harder. 
And so give them some leeway to have some control and pick something, even if it seems too simplistic for you. That may and may be true, but then you're you're getting some validation and some buy-in into the process, or maybe it really is hard for them. So that's agoraphobia. Those are the things to look out for. Those are the things to do. Your child doesn't have to have full-blown agoraphobia for you to be like, eh, they do avoid going out a lot. We should work on that. That is important because it's a precursor or it could be a precursor to full-blown agoraphobia. And I don't want that habit of avoidance and staying home to avoid growing into a full-blown agoraphobic situation. So I hope that you're finding this podcast in general helpful. If you are, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcasts. If you are interested in the crushing OCD course for kids and teens, don't forget to atparentingsurvivalschool.com and check that out. And if you have a few extra minutes and want to leave a review, you know I greatly appreciate that. I'm actually going to the website to pull up and see if anyone's left anything because I always like to read something to show my gratitude. Well, I want to thank Chris who wrote such a great resource and I apologize. I can't see the full thing and I tried and for some reason, sometimes on Apple, I can't see the whole review. So I only get a little bit of it, but they wrote my 13 year old who was recently diagnosed with OCD. I stumbled upon this podcast as I was desperately searching for resources, support and guidance in navigating this new reality that we're working through as a family. From the first episode I listened to, I immediately felt like, wow, I'm not alone. I'm so grateful to have this tool as I walk alongside my son in his OCD. I can't say thank you enough for sharing honest, real-life help for parents. And that might actually be the end. Thank you so much, Chris, for leaving that review. I really appreciate it. And maybe if you write a review, I'll be reading yours as well next time. Don't forget to find the sparkle in everything you do. I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.